In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are carrying heavy burdens. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, and you'll find rest for your souls. Jesus was speaking about the burdens that the Pharisees were placing on average people in his day. In fact, there was a term for it. It was called the burden of the yoke of the Pharisees. The yoke of the Pharisees was their attempt to try to put on people all the minutiae of the laws that had built up year after year after year and make people do them. And if they did those things, then they would be righteous and they would somehow be connected with God and be a part of God's coming kingdom. Jesus contrasted his yoke with the yoke of the Pharisees. Now, in the time of Jesus, there were 613 commandments that came from Scripture, from, came from the, the Torah. Not only the Ten Commandments, but the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, and there were 613 commandments. In addition to that, there were a bunch of other commandments in other manuals that had been developed because the Pharisees believed that if people could just keep the commandments, then there would be life present. Then the age to come would, would just swallow them up. And so this whole idea of keeping all of these minutia, and Jesus fought the Pharisees over and over again in the Gospels. And let's just hear what Jesus said about the Pharisees later in Matthew in chapter 23. He says, these uh, Pharisees, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on the shoulders of others, but they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. Jesus says this, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you lock people out of the kingdom of heaven, for you do not go in yourselves, and when others are going in, you stop them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cross sea and land and make a single convert, and you make the new convert twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Let's go on. This is Jesus, meek and mild. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you tithe mint, dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith it is these you ought to have practiced without without neglecting the others you blind guides you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel now jesus combated the pharisees because they were laying heavy burdens they were laying laws that had nothing to do with god laws that god didn't command you can imagine if you had a little garden and you had to tithe 10% of your mint and your dill and your cumin. And that's just the beginning of it. So Jesus says, come to me and I'll help you. I'll give you rest. I'll help your soul. I'll show you, in fact, a whole new way of life, not the way of outward performance to man-made laws, but in fact, the way of the heart 
of living in relationship with God and in the love of God and a transformation of your heart to in fact actually do the real laws that God commands, which is love your neighbor, with uh, love, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus is showing us and giving us another way. The Apostle Paul, if you are listening to the epistle lesson, describes what every human being, no doubt, is well aware of, that we have problems doing what we really know is good. He mentions that in his mind, because he is a a former Pharisee, and uh, he knows the law of God intimately, in his mind, he concedes that the law of God is holy, just, and good, But he finds another law or principle inside of him called sin that is in his members. This is not like the members of Sam's Club. Uh, This is the members of your body. This is our bodily uh, inclinations. And he says that he finds in his body, in his flesh, this principle of sin that makes him do what he doesn't want to do. So in his mind, he wants to obey God, but he finds a competing principle called sin that's moving through his body, keeping him from doing what he knows what he ought. Now, does that sound familiar to any of us? Of course it is. And he was not the first one to come up with this because the Roman philosopher Seneca said that we all are helpless in necessary things. Another Roman poet, Ovid, said this. He's famous for saying, I see the better things and I approve them, but I follow the worse. Well, the rabbis knew about this problem also. They described it as two inclinations inside the human person. There is the Yetzer Hara which is the evil inclination, and there's the Yetzer Hatob, which is the good inclination, and those are at war with one another. Well, the problem with all this, of course, Paul says, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he says, thanks be to God, for Jesus Christ our Lord will be our rescuer, our deliverer, our Savior, because we have this dilemma that we need to be saved from. Because Jesus did not come to make relatively good people a little bit better. Jesus actually came in order to give dead people life. And we've got to get that really straightened out in our head. Because some of us, maybe not in this room so much, But over the years, the good news of the gospel has become, well, Jesus came and he's going to help us become a little bit better. And so it's just a moral improvement project. And that has nothing to do with what the Bible is actually speaking about. In fact, we are in such a condition that we need a savior and a rescuer and a deliverer. And that's what Christ came to do. So Christ did not come to say, well, don't worry about all those laws. You can just do whatever you want. God loves you. You know, it doesn't really matter anyway. But there's a lot of people nowadays that feel that way and basically live that way. 
Jesus did not come and say, hey, let me give you some more rules and you just try harder because I really know the rules. I make up the rules and you just need to try harder to become better. And so you can steal a little less and then there's some improvement. You can run around a little less and there's some more improvement. You can gossip just a little less and there's more improvement. That has nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I know that might take a little bit to settle in. Again, Jesus did not come to make relatively good people a little better. He came to make dead people alive. Jesus comes to us as the way, the truth, and the life. He is God in the flesh, the divine and human life together forever. And in his person, he is the life. He is the life that we need. So the entire goal of what's happening is, is that we are letting go of a life that is dead or just waiting to die and moving into a life that is eternal. In fact, it's a life that has died to cancel out sin. And it's a life that we enter into by dying in baptism and being joined to this life of Jesus forever. And so this new life that has already conquered sin and death, the very life of the risen Jesus, the person of Jesus in whom the life dwells, we are called to get into that life. So not only that we can have eternal life, but Paul would let us know that this life, the life of Christ or the life of the spirit in us will actually empower us to do God's will and commandments. So Jesus is not saying to us, well, you're not under the law anymore. Just do whatever you want. In fact, the call of love is actually much higher that Jesus calls us to. And we can accomplish that on our own. So we leave behind ideas of maybe getting a little bit better, improving ourselves a little bit more because I'm basically a good person and, you know, and I'm satisfied. We leave that behind And we know that actually in baptism, we went from death to life. We went from being condemned as a lawbreaker, which is what we are, because if we really wanted to get under the microscope, it would not be hard to say which commandments we have broken. And that's what our status is. But we have moved from that over into the righteousness of this new life of Christ And so that is the whole trajectory of where we are going. And so Jesus came as the life, and he says to us still, if we will just come to him, he still says, come to me, I'll give you rest, you take my yoke upon you, and we will move forward together. And so what is is that yoke of Jesus, which is really a way of life? What might that be? I just jotted down a few things about the way of the heart, the way of Jesus. We admit we're not the center of the universe, not even the center of my own life. Christ is my life, and I'm seeking his life. 
I'm learning about life from God and from others. I don't have to say I've got this all figured out. We're in this process of learning. We are open to the other because we are in partnership with Jesus. And he actually tells us that our neighbor, the other, not just ourselves, the other is eternally important. Trust is necessary for this yoke of Jesus. Humility is necessary for this yoke of Jesus. The cross is necessary and some suffering and humiliation. But the yoke of Jesus leads to eternal life. The yoke of Jesus is in fact life right now, here and now. And as another way of just stating what this way of Jesus might be, because it's not contentless, it uh, has a content, it has a shape and a form. Jesus wouldn't say, well, come to me, but you know, it doesn't really matter now whether you worship or not. Uh, Come to me and take on my way of life, but it doesn't really matter whether you pray or whether you give, none of that really matters. I mean, that would be ridiculous to think that. So what came to my mind was something that my old mentor, Larry Gibson, came up with when he was at St. Martin's. And I haven't uh, read it in many years, but it, it really is great. It's called The Seven Christian Habits. But we could just call them today The Seven Christian Ways of Life. Or we could just say, this is what the yoke of Jesus looks like in some form. And I made copies uh, so you can get one on the way out. I'm not going to read all of this, but I will just highlight uh, some of these. The first part of this new way of life is, in fact, a relationship with God as revealed in Christ through the Holy Spirit. The second is daily personal prayer and weekly worship of God in his church for the renewal of my emotional and spiritual energy that I need to live my life. Remember, this is not our life. This is life in Christ. It is Christ's life in us. Number three, regular Bible study. Number four, adjusting my will to the will of God as I encounter God in scripture, prayer, worship, and my relationship. Number five, service, ministry at home with family and friends, at work, at church, and in the world. Number six is interesting, fellowship, renewing relationships with others who share this life in Christ. And number seven is stewardship of my resources, my relationships, time and talent, uh, and money giving to God and his work. But you see, when we talk about that we're no longer under the law, but we're under grace, this is the content of that grace. All of this, the ability to worship, to pray, to hear God's word in scripture, to live all of that out, that is the life of grace. The freedom to actually do God's will is the freedom of being in Christ, being in the spirit, having God's grace and power in life flow through us Not so we don't have to do God's will and commandments, but in order that we actually can do them because Paul gets to that point after this passage. 
Today, as we come in our worship to receive this risen life of Christ that is victorious over sin and death, may we receive it as our very life that we may be under the yoke of Jesus and doing God's will and blessing others. Amen.